Hello and welcome to another conversation in anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. Each episode we sit down with our fellow anthropologists to talk about their work, the state of the discipline and what anthropology has to tell us about the 21st century. Conversations in Anthropology is produced by Matt Barlow, Cami O'Dally, Maithili Maher, Timothy Neal, and myself, David Border-Giles. The podcast is produced in association with the American Anthropological Association and with the support of the Australian Anthropological Society. In this episode, Maithili talks to Anne Galloway and Laura McLaughlin. Anne is a former academic and current farm witch who, in both roles, has spent a weird amount of time getting to know sheep. Laura is a multi-species anthropologist at the Social Policy Research Centre at UNSW and lectures with the UNSW Environment and Society Group. And it should be said that Anne and Laura, and Mithili as well, are all dear friends. As they speak of friendship, policy, care, death, and killing, anthropology emerges as a way into practices and relations that could maybe, we hope, inform a better world. There are some characters that you meet along the way, like the snail-eating hedgehog, or Emmeline the sheep, who, as Anne says, is a thorn in the side of domestication. There are also some themes that get returned to occasionally throughout the conversation. Like, what is the difference between kindness and niceness? Kindness and love as practices. The need to be met with love and friendship. Relationship building as the core work of policymaking. When you don't want to be in relation with others and holding boundaries. The need for emotional intelligence in academia and policy. The tension between opening and protecting. And holism with humility and the anthropological possibility of moving between scales. So I hope you enjoy this tender conversation that's full of laughter and maybe some tears too. And it comes with a content and language warning. You know, lots of academics become academics because we want to have an intellectual life. But academia as that broad thing, whatever we want to call it, um, it's not an intellectual life. And so to be intellectually fulfilled is not the purpose of academia. It's not the practice of labor that structures academia. Um, But it is fundamental to most good friendships. Oh, that's so well put. Okay, can I take that as an opportunity to to start at both of your beginnings of becoming anthropologists and then academics to being the kind of anthropologists you are today, which, you know, being entrained into a certain discipline and then finding yourself and your voice in it? I got thinking about that and 
I've always been a very poor academic. I, I was never a really good academic, and I want to explain what I mean by that. So I went to university to become an archaeologist. I only ever wanted to be an archaeologist. I had grown up in South America. I would been surrounded by Inca architecture my whole life, and I, that's what I wanted to do. And when I went to university, that's exactly what I did. I became an Andean archaeologist. <laughs> and I went and I did my field work in Peru and I, you know, dug up my Inca architecture and I did my, you know, ethno-historical work in the archives. And then I went and did some experimental ethnographic work that would help me reconstruct. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is this is the greatest thing I've ever done. And I said, wow, this job. This job, this intellectual job is magnificent. And the rest of the job totally sucked. Um, uh, the, mm. the, the sexism, the sexual harassment in the field was unbearable to me. And the general elitism mm. was too much. And so by the end of my master's, I, I was no longer going to be an archaeologist. It just wasn't tenable. And I didn't even want to be an academic. Uh, but I, I was convinced at some point to go back to school. And so I did my PhD in sociology. And then I went and did, uh, you know, I went and worked in design schools. And it was only after all of that that I was willing to call myself an anthropologist. What do you think shifted that let you want to call yourself an anthropologist or... Well, I never had any affinity to sociology, despite the fact that I have a degree in it. It just didn't resonate with me like anthropology had. So that was kind of just a simple preference. Um, yeah. It was mostly because I was surrounded by designers and I wasn't a designer. So I had to be something. <laughs> and <laughs> what I... And I mean, it was just so obvious to me that I wasn't one of them, but I was no longer an anthropologist and I was never a sociologist. So I figured I could just call myself whatever I wanted. So I chose the one that felt best. <laughs> and I just made yeah, it up. Okay. I mean, I was never a dedicated scholar. I couldn't choose a discipline. I couldn't choose a field. I couldn't do what was expected of me because it never felt consistent with who I am and what I experienced in the world. There was mm. always uh, a sense that I was expected to either ignore or hide the parts of what I was doing mm. that were most valuable to me. And I could tick mm. the boxes that the university required. And I did well in that regard. I mean, I managed to go through the ranks. There's nothing like leaving academia once you've gotten tenure. Like it's that idea that, you know, I did everything right and then decided I totally didn't want it because none of it satisfied me. Because at the end of the day, the things that I valued the most weren't counted. Mm. And what were those things in? I, I feel my way through the world a great deal. And mm. there's, a, mm. there's a, real, a real sense that a researcher ought to at some point choose whether they're going to be a feeling human being or a thinking human being. And that struck me as ludicrous. Um, mm -hmm. So I always failed in that regard. I can be analytical, but it's something that I work at rather than something that I naturally sort of do. Well, the thing it made me think of is, you know, how to bring all of oneself and all of one's 
you know that you know the weirdness when you're in those moments and this is a thing that I still love in anthropology but also just in being a human and I um of those moments just where something shifts and I understand something differently or those moments with another person or other people where just something mm. emerges that isn't me or them and it's something oh. has happened yeah, yeah. and I'm um and so I, beautiful so beautiful like one of my favorite things as a just as a human and I think that for me has been what has kept me coming back to something like anthropology because mm. it potentially has the ability to hold that moment or that bigness of whatever that thing is and and I love whatever that thing is and that weirdness of not being able to predict what's going to come out of it exactly or how I'll be changed or how the other mm. will be changed or kind of, I don't even know what it is, but I... Well, you do because you wrote about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you write about it as being sort of... <laughs> um, Oh, sorry. Can I can I quote you? Please, back, yes, please, please, just disagree with me with myself. Oh that. no, that's that's actually what you that's what you say in that that beautiful paper, lively collaborations. Oh, it is gorgeous. One of my so good. Um, you say as we come into motion with others, you mean in conversations and in reading groups and com- like any kind of thing where people get together and are feeling themselves we simultaneously forget ourselves and become more than ourselves oh huh. that's love huh. isn't oh. that love I that think is that's love, love. <laughs> and yeah. isn't that oh thank you for that Maithali I haven't read or it's what's interesting there for me is that in that little piece I was sort of being silly in some ways like I wasn't but in my head, I was like, oh, I'm writing a piece. I'm going to write it partly about Steven Universe, you know, like a queer children's cartoon that I love. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this isn't serious academic things. This is just – and yet that's actually me saying a thing that I care about most deeply um, and done – and it was for an – you know, it was an academic piece, you know, thinking about pedagogy and, you know, all that. Mm. But But – I was able to write about it in that particular piece because for some reason I have permission to be, uh, I guess like I would be speaking with you two. You know, yeah. like I'm not necessarily able to cite every complete step of yeah. my logics and and I'm able just to kind of put my heart out there a little bit and speak in that register where I'm not purely in the rational Mm. You know, there's something that I know and that my body knows. And that when I speak about other people, they're like, yes, yes, yes. I also <laughs> know this. Yes. Um, and, yeah, and that isn't the register that if I'm trying to do an academic presentation that I would be in. Yeah, similar to Anne, actually, I also wanted to be an archaeologist in the very beginning and wanted to discover the original matriarchy. <laughs> wow. Um, and then gave up on that reasonably <gasps> quickly. Um, <laughs> but it was that was the original plan. Um, 
when I was what, 17 or whatever that was. Um, and then it was actually primatology that was the thing because I'd also studied, yeah, yeah, biological, well, biological sciences, but I got distressed at how many insects needed to be ethered in order to become um, a biologist. Uh, so, yeah, then I was like, oh, actually, primatology is a way that I could study uh members of other species and study with them without having to kill lots of them in order to to get there. Mm. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so I moved to Auckland University to do that, which is where I met Maithili. Um And, yeah, and then, but primatology, um, you know, when I actually went off to Sumatra to go and study orangutan, Poo, um, which is my first and only primatological quest. Um, yeah, it was it was deeply disturbing and uh, deeply colonial, which I feel like maybe I could have known <laughs> before I got there, but somehow needed to see it um, <laughs> and just see uh, who was there. You know, what color were the people who were being paid for this work? Uh, mm. what colour are the people who are doing most of the actual hard work of being able to identify and know other beings. Um, and I was, yeah, and also, you know, what was going on in terms of um, palm and rubber plantation, um, you know, horrors really. And mm. and who was benefiting from that financially? And it wasn't mostly people who were living there. So, yeah, then I left in really distressed actually um and then went back to uni to I was going to become an economist <laughs> to understand the you know those greater flows of extraction that seem to be much more helpful to oh, wow. other beings than becoming a um a primatologist and um I just couldn't do it it just was not my way of thinking and yeah and so anthropology um yeah I'd been in a yeah, at Auckland Anthropology Department, which had biological anthropology right next to social anthropology. So social mm -hmm. anthro had always been there as well. Um, and social anthro seemed to kind of hold, yeah, hold a lot. But at that stage, it didn't allow for also hanging out with more than human beings and writing about that in a really serious way. Yeah, it didn't at the time. It yeah. didn't. No, it didn't. And so... I was really distressed and quit <laughs> and then did my master's in a, in a graphic novel project. Um, so drawing animals from small town New Zealand. Mm. Um, and yeah, and then that really wasn't for me either. Um, I wanted to be doing something. Yeah, so then I went to go and do religious studies. That also distressed me, you know, because again, like where were the more than human beings. And then I read a piece by Anna Singh. Um, and this would have been about 2000 and, oh, I don't know, 2012 by this stage, 2011. Mm -hmm. And um, and she was just writing about it all and just writing about, you know, mushrooms and love. And, you know, she even, you know, said in it, alhamdulillah, you know, at the kind of the beauty of this all. And I was like, what? You can do that in anthropology now? You can have economics and love and mushrooms and, you know, a sense of something bigger and that's possible. And then that was when I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go back to anthropology. <laughs> that's, isn't that the promise of the holism that anthropology always promised us. 
I mean, the other moment that comes to mind too is also reading Dead Bird Rose. <gasps> yeah. And just that idea that it was possible to write about love, I am still so grateful and kind of astounded that that is possible. Mm. And, um, and, and this is the other thing too, how to do that also in a way that um, doesn't Mm, what's the term I'm looking for? I'm, I'm thinking with um, Maria Puig de la Bella Casa as well. I wish I could actually do the quote, quote, but um, you know, where she writes about, you know, love is also really dangerous as well. You know, it can make us do, you know, forget the other things that we do to care for the loved other, you know, and to not just, and, you know, such about a hold. And I think that, going back to the sing piece, and it's there in Maria Puigia de Casa and in Dead Bird Rose too, and absolutely in your work, and as well, of, of holding love and harm together. And, you know, to know that actually there's something creepy when things just become, uh, you know, just like just pure celebrations of love as goodness. And it just makes you feel a little bit sick and quite frightened. And there was something in that sing piece where it was, there was just this love celebration of mushrooms, but there's also this sense in her writing of shit and um, uh, damage and kind of imperfection. And and to go back to what Anne was saying before as well about the holism and that is possible. You know, that was kind of always that promise in anthropology, um, and that mm. also, you know, it can have a really creepy tone to it as well. You know, that like I'm going to understand all of the things, um, everything, everything, <laughs> everything. And what I think is present now is absolutely that holism and a kind of a humble holism. You know, a mm. humble. I'm going to be affected by everything or lots of things, maybe not quite everything. And they, those, and they, they all matter. And I'm not going to understand any of them perfectly. And, and I'm not good either as a, and there's something about being not good for me that gives me a sense of safety as well. Um, And, and I'm really, really grateful for the, little quarters of writing and thinking that feel like um, they're working to hold hold something like that. And certainly for me that was in that was what struck me in reading mm. Singh's work. It just yeah, felt safe and fresh and alive in a way oh. that, you know, a lot of things hadn't. Yeah. Mm. That's really beautiful. She's very, work. very special. Yeah. Mm. And that is Can a really beautiful question? like homage to her. Of course. The when when you say that you're not good, Laura, um, where do you get to write about that? Where do you get to talk about that? I mean, I'm not asking you whether you are or you aren't. I'm just gonna accept you when you say I'm not good. But when do you ever get to share that with people? What a great question um with you two <laughs> I get to share something like that and have done and feel safe to um and sometimes sometimes I have moments of that teaching too there can be little little moments where um 
And it does feel like there's love in the room too, where I just can be quite candid sometimes with students about, you know, the just getting real, you know, um, holding space still and wanting to be responsible as an educator. Um, yeah, and actually there's this, um, oh, who was it that wrote it? Oh, I want to say it's in a book called Power in the Healing Professions by a guy, Guggenbo Craig. I think, I'm pretty sure that's who it is. Anyway, there's a forward mm-hmm. in it written by a teacher. And he talks about um, in education about having the space be, before he goes in, he imagines the space as being held by like an old woman, this old kind of powerful wise woman. And they're all just in her cauldron and kind of learning together and something happens in those spaces. And that feels like, yeah, those moments in teaching too, where I'm not invested in being good or right but I, I am trusting some process that's holding us all together. Oh, and it's very, I it's occasional. <laughs> yeah, I love that too. I think I that you're that right. Too. It is occasional. So so that's it. Those are my favorite mm. moments as well, or the ones that I value. When you ask me, Maithili, what I value that. That's partly why Laura and mm. I are friends, is because we, we mm. share <laughs> that in common. Um, and I couldn't get enough of that in a formal professional setting. Um, now, that mm. that says more about me than it does about the setting, actually, because maybe the setting doesn't need to be that. What I've learned is that I need to be that. And when I'm not yeah, yeah. permitted that, um, I feel diminished. And um, so, for example, I've never been able to publish my favorite stories about my field work because they upset other people so much. This is this is a story about one the of the first your sheep? sheep that I killed. The first sheep of mine that yeah. I killed. So the first one okay. that I had seen born, the first one that I yeah. slept with, the one that I loved, I killed with my hands. The same hands yeah. that loved and helped that animal live were the same hands that took his life. They were also the same hands that enjoyed the feeling of, can I share this? I mean, I I can share this because I can talk Mm. about it. When skinning an animal often bothers people more than some other aspects of of processing a carcass, there is something Mm. disturbing about pulling the skin off of an animal. Um, but when you do it with a sheep, you have to get your hand in and you, you use a fist because you need to turn your fist to break the fascia, to separate the skin from the flesh. And you, so you're covered in fat. You smell nothing but lanolin and fat. That, the, the smell is overwhelming. The feeling you're against muscle, so hard muscle, against a flexible covering that is slipping and so every time your hand goes in it hurts your your knuckles hurt after you take the skin off of a sheep your knuckles are swollen because you had to work so hard to push it off but everything about that particular part of the process is one of the greatest things I have ever experienced. I loved every bit of it. It smelled good. Mm. It felt good. It 
hurt me and I didn't care. I loved that part so much that at the end, I wanted to just put the whole skin on top of me and just stay there for a while. And I realized that if I did that, it would just destroy someone. But it's your stories of killing Anne have helped me so much. Yes, I'm currently dating someone who is a meat eater and, you know, for the two of us, it has been, and I'm still a vegetarian, you know, and like for her, it's it's a massively important part of who it is, you know, who she is and also where she's from and mm. it just really matters. And it's been your work around killing that's, you know, and, and others too. Um, it's really challenged and been so helpful for for me actually questioning my purity shit around vegetarianism. And I'll probably remain a vegetarian, you know, maybe. But I am interested and always have been in that idea of killing, you know, I said if I was going to eat meat again, I would want to kill and I'd want to kill well. Mm. And there's something that you do, and when you speak about it, I actually, I disagree. I think it's hard for folks to hear and I remember when I first, you know, would see your tweets about it and I'd be like, oh, and it would like hit me and I'd have to sit with it and it'd be really uncomfortable. But something in me has shifted because of knowing and loving you and knowing and loving your work mm-hmm. that actually it there's this whole space, I don't know, I'm not explaining this well at all, but of just realizing where I don't know sheep agree. I think it's like the heart of multi-species um, to have love and death and love and killing be part of the same set of relationships. Uh, do, you, do you relate to a lot of other farmers where you are in terms of how you love your sheep? I don't think that most people do love their sheep that way. Most farmers okay. anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think that abstractly, sure, but most farmers don't have the luxury of knowing their sheep either. How do you know 10,000 yeah. sheep? Um, True. My, my flock is knowable because it's so small. There's, there's six right now. That's it. Okay. Okay. And so there, you know, people have that many pets. It's, it's, mm. they just live outside. They're Children, no different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ex- well, true. Exactly. And, uh, but you know, we generally don't eat them, um, <laughs> either pets or children. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, I eat my kin and at least some of them, I mean, none of these six will ever be killed for food. Mm. They're past breeding age. They've retired. The girls have retired and, um, one is celibate, so I won't force her to breed. Um, and the other one is a castrated male. So he's definitely not breeding. But the, the thing is, is that I, I think that one of the things that I did learn from farmers is that it, it's not an intellectual or moral failing to be able to distinguish between edible and non-edible individuals <laughs> that hmm. you you can, in fact, hold those things quite easily in, in your head. Um, it's weird, but it, it's not, it doesn't prevent one from acting. And that's one of the things that I learned and that was so important from fieldwork. I'm not led by what I read. I'm led 
by what I have experienced and, and witnessed. And it wasn't something that I prepared for. I didn't grow up on a farm. I'd never killed an animal before I killed my own animals. It, it was not something I aspired to. I still don't like doing it, but I am inordinately, I've learned, I mean, and by that I, I was surprised to learn that I am really proud of the fact that I've never, ever screwed up killing an animal. Every animal I've killed, I've killed mm. very well. And every animal I've killed, I have respected every single piece of their material remains. And I'm proud of that. Mm. <laughs> I didn't think that I would be proud of it. I didn't try to be proud of it, but I am proud of it. I know how to do it. I can kill and treat something with respect without ever stopping loving. So for Laura, you too work in contexts where death and killing are pretty key features, which I know has been really challenging for you in your work on ecological conservation in Aotearoa, especially coming to that after you worked with hedgehog carers and hedgehog champions in Bristol to come back here and face hedgehog culling. Can you tell us a little bit about how love and kindness have come to be sort of features of the spaces in which killing and death are so prominent? Thanks, Maithili. Yeah, um, just two things come to mind. Mm. One is that um, when I started my PhD, I was a committed vegan. Uh, I had spent time when I was living in Melbourne as a snail mender, and I would find snails that had been trodden on and take them inside and then keep them sufficiently moist that their, their shells could grow back and then um, release them back out into the wilds of West Brunswick. Wow. And so when I started my, um, my field work and I was back in New Zealand and I really wanted to study kindness, you know, like how is it that people mm. become kind to other species and I was going to study hedgehogs in the UK and it was going to be great – Anyway, I found out that I had hedgehogs living underneath my house in Dunedin in Aotearoa, New Zealand at the time. And, um, and then one night I was outside in the backyard with this hedgehog. And, of course, we had lots of snails. And this little hedgehog just went through the garden. And I just heard, Really, that was my first deep disturbance of you know speaking of being with what is. Oh, hedgehogs eat other beings. Like this <laughs> was not gonna be my great study of finding a way with the lion finally lays down with the lamb. No, like the lion eats the <laughs> lamb. <laughs> um and the and sound. So I, I can't get past the sound. The sound is amazing. <laughs> I'm so glad you saved that story for this medium. <laughs> oh, so good, Laura. I can just imagine the trauma of it. <laughs> I was just, I just actually just sat there and just, what, oh my God, has it happened? And, um, and I, I, 
I responded to that. I'm not proud of it, but I hated hedgehogs for a while. I was just mm-hmm. like, you little snail-eating fuckers, you know? <laughs> and then and then I guess that was the beginning of, um, you know, how the world actually is in that moment mm-hmm. of, okay, can I expand out my idea of what kindness or love might be to something that is not just we don't eat each other? Um, because it doesn't when I actually sat with it and I was like yeah but how much you know if we're not going to eat each other we're going to be needing to make a whole lot of artificial food products to feed the hedgehogs to dissuade them from eating the snails to like it's going to be a lot and it Mm -hmm. was there was a real grief to be honest in letting go of that Um, and I'm grateful for it and things haven't been the same since <laughs> in terms of um, the the worldview I was trying to push on the world didn't fit the world. Yeah, so I think that was kind of the beginning of loving. I mean, I started off with kindness of wanting to know, but thinking mm. of kindness as niceness, really. You know, like how mm. are people nice to other animals? And as it developed, it became thinking about I guess, you know, how can I think about connection and thinking about mm. kin, you know, that kin element of kindness that, um, you know, Haraway and lots of other folks have pointed out. Is niceness here like a sort of, I relate to you in this kind of bland, easy way that's pleasant, whereas kindness has more to do with sort of compromise and care and the mole sense where it's always going to be you know, you're never going to be good enough, but you're trying to do the best you can. Is that the distinction for I think you that's, I think that's beautifully okay. put, Maithili. And um, the only other thing I would uh, add to it is there is some sense of holding myself apart when I'm in niceness too. You know, like I am, mm. I'm kind of separate, a little bit better than kind of. Oh, yeah. Um, and a bit pure, I think, too, when I've got that, when there's that nice valence to my kindness. Um, and it feels a bit safe and separate versus a kindness that actually recognizes a relatedness. And, um, mm. you know, I mean, yeah, still something I struggle with, but I think one that is um, a fundamental problem with the particular lineages of thought and being that I come from. Yeah. Mm. I loved what you said, Laura, about getting mad at the hedgehogs. So this mm. is this is interesting to me because one of the things when when I think about love and kindness in my my own work, okay, so I think uh clearly I I believe in kindness towards all animals. Now, there are some definitions of kindness that would exclude killing them. And, and I'm going to just leave that aside for the moment. It's, I'm, I'm not saying they're wrong. What I am saying, though, is that um, <laughs> these things get all, all messed up. And, and what distinguish kindness and love for me is that they're practices. They're, they're not just emotions or concepts or theories. They're things that mm. we do. And because we do them, then they're as messy as everything else that we do. One of the things that love and kindness do for me is that they they avoid that kind of judgment that can easily slip into dismissal and, and hatred. To give you a really concrete example, when I when I think about uh, 
being a, a good stock person. So handling an animal, let's leave killing out of it, just handling the animal. Um, look, I have a sheep that the only way I can describe her is with the C word. Um, I'm happy saying it. Emmeline is a cunt. I don't like her. <laughs> I don't like anything about her. <laughs> now, here's the mm. thing that happens, though, in a domesticated animal relationship. And this is where I think that um, multi-species ethnography, especially, uh, we deal with domestication less successfully than we deal with wildlife. <laughs> and and I, mm. I think there's a there's a real tension there that that fascinates me. I mean, part of part of the reason I'm willing to admit that part of the reason that I, I chose, I, I was attracted to studying animal farming is because there were a whole bunch of very good scholars, people I otherwise think are absolutely brilliant. And they just simply thought that meat eating should be abolished entirely. And by extension, animal farmers would be eradicated too. And I was simultaneously fascinated and horrified by this because mm. I wanted to know how kindness and love can even work under those circumstances. It, it's not irrelevant that it took me until I was sort of, you know, coming up on 50 to realize that this is not what I want to do for the next 25 years. I, I, choose, I choose to work with sheep. <laughs> I, I choose to work with people who want to take good care of sheep not people who want to abolish sheep. Can we talk about the big change that happened for you, Anne, at the end of last year, which is you deciding <laughs> to leave academia? Yeah, it's the best thing I've done, truly. It was 20 years since, the first, since I started my PhD. Um, so for 20 years, I was, I was, you know, a proper academic, and uh, it... It was all I ever wanted to do until I realized that I didn't have to and that the things that I actually wanted to do were either not permitted or weren't rewarded. And at some okay. level, it they became the same thing to me. I, I couldn't write the piece where I told you that I liked the feeling of my hand between flesh and skin. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't talk about that in a way that didn't make people completely freak out on me, <laughs> completely directed to me. And I, I couldn't handle that. Um, I thought I was strong enough. And, I, you know, I don't know if it's a matter of strength, to be honest. Um, for a long time, I thought there was something wrong with me because I couldn't handle their condemnation. I don't believe that anymore. But at the same point, Jesus, there's no reason for me to ask for it. I mean, that's the most masochistic yeah. practice I've ever heard of. Yeah. And I dedicated myself to it in the names of being a better scholar. Can I ask how it felt to leave? I just know that it's something that's that hovers on a lot of people's minds. Um, yeah. A lot of people who are in the academy, however tenuously in the academy, think about leaving. Well, it's terrifying if it's the only thing you've ever done. I never had another job, really. I mean, except for mm. service jobs while I was a student. This is any, it's all I've ever done. So the first thing you realize when you leave is, holy shit, what am I going to do? And I still don't have an answer to that. Um, I'm living on my savings right now, and that is not a good feeling. 
especially when you're 50. So, I mean, those are very real things to consider. I haven't thought about getting a, a new full-time job yet, and I'm going to have to. Uh, I, I, there are bills to pay. The, the world, the material world still exists. <laughs> um, so I have, I have certain luxuries now that are about to run out. And um, I, I need to, I need to find something else, but not a single moment goes by that I don't think I did the right thing. The thing, the thing that kills me most now is that for so long, I believed like any good academic, that my thinking and my words alone would be able to change the world. It's false. I disagree. Mm. I, I think your thinking and words and being, at least this little world, like my little world, radically changed because of your presence. Not necessarily, you know, that you have to be an academic in order for that to have happened. But, um, you know, my, not just my academic thinking but my being is different because mm. of the work that you've done and that's not you know to use the New Zealand phrase just to piss in your pocket at all <laughs> it's might not you know it's not the whole world but it's this little world um has changed well, thank you kindly and, for that but do you know what I'm going to suggest that that's because we're friends mm, not because we're academics I'll take that <laughs> how did you guys become friends tell me that story uh, well, my remember. story of it. Oh, I've got a story <laughs> of it. It was um, so the wonderful Estrida Namenis had mm, organised yeah. um, a, a writing um, retreat, yes, symposium. Mm. Um, yes, that things actually we were all on. There. Things had mm. changed there, and for me, the friendship actually came when it was out. This is, I think, telling. It wasn't in the main hall where we were all at the end presenting our papers. It was outside of it. And there was this little kind of grassed area um, outside. And Anne and I had both somehow wandered out there. And I just, I remember feeling a sense of grateful resonance that someone else was also thinking about death and kindness and just thinking, oh, oh, there's someone else who's thinking about this and uses these words. And it was Anne saying that, you know, that kindness was, you know, the thing that she cared the most about or, you know, that was a thing that was always present. I was like, yeah, me too. And it felt like telling a secret for me and having it be really well kept, you know, of saying, this is actually what I give a shit about the most. Oh, yeah, me too. This is... And I guess that thing of friendship, actually, and of, and I feel this with you both, of that that little bit of bravery that comes from just not being all alone in something is mm-hmm. um, is huge, you know, just to think, oh, someone else also grapples with these things. Um, yeah. So first of all, my first memory of Laura was uh, her kindness towards me. And it became, and that's what allowed us to talk about these things that now I, I consider to be sort of the basis of everything was that, yes, her and I were thinking about similar things and using similar words and that we didn't agree with each other and we had always, or, or we had different experiences, but that we we met each other with love and kindness. And she was immediately mm-hmm that was there. And so I didn't have to establish that 
there, there was no, it just was. And that's not very often that that happens in life, I think. Mm. And so there was that initial affinity and for lack of a better word of feeling loved Mm. and understanding that if Laura could love me, then I wasn't entirely on the wrong track. Gosh, we really (laughs) need each other to like have ideas, don't we? Or imagine anything to cultivate our imaginations. One thing that I want to ask about, well, I, I mean, we talk about love and kindness in, in our lives. And I know that, um, certainly in both of your work, you you hone in on that aspect. But then my question is sort of, how do you, how do you, is, is it on the table at all that these, these practices move into system design, policy, policy design, or, you know, just frameworks that change the scale and move yeah. them, move them more broadly? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, yeah. Maithley. Gorgeous question. And, um, I'm in the unusual situation of currently working in um, on working in policy. I guess I could mm. say now as a policy anthropologist and mm. um, at UNSW at the yeah, Centre for Social the Social Policy Research Centre. And because I I left my doctoral work just thinking, oh God, you know, policy level change is really needed and structural change is really needed. You know, for for hedgehogs to be thriving in the UK or, you know, just for, for all of us, really, or who is us, that's always a vital question too, um, at least just for hedgehogs, <laughs> these structural change. And um, and it's been the most wonderful project to be working on. And just the thing that I'm writing up at the moment is actually the importance of friendship mm-hmm. in terms of inclusion of people who aren't otherwise in the policy process and it's just mm-hmm. friendship it's just what Anne said it's mm-hmm. actually who's you know and it really that question of with whom do we become friends mm-hmm. and then you know and it's it's looking at uh and this is looking around drug policy reform and yeah particularly for people with you know lived experience of um of illicit drug use to actually claim a space at the table, so to speak, really requires work off the table, but or on different tables, yeah. tables of eating and drinking and just knowing each other. And yeah, and so that I'm becoming more and more convinced that friendship matters and it matters at a policy level too. So I'm actually more and more yeah. wanting to look at um yeah at yeah, politicians too, and you know, mm. mates, and those kind of interpersonal connections that make such difference to who it is that we become. Wow. And can also avoid nepotism, though, because there's nothing worse than That's a it, bunch right? of like a cabal of mates that are up to no good. <laughs> so, I mean, I would want to qualify that because I completely agree with what you're saying. Everything resonates, but I would maybe have to say that. To me, what you're you're hinting at is that the relationship building is actually the core work of policy making. It's such sophisticated work because you're you're talking at the same time about like having a lot of generosity in relationships to hold the unpleasant 
alongside everything else, but also having a sense of when your boundaries align and when you don't want to be in relation with others. Absolutely. So when is it? And I think maybe, and who who is the sheep that you don't particularly enjoy, Anne? Emmeline. 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm just going to so finish is, is talking it, about the Emmeline. What do I do with Emmeline? So here's the thing about Emmeline is that when she does something that my reaction is, Emmeline, you are a cunt. My only obligation after that point to Emmeline is to not handle her because in handling her, I am exerting my power over her because the power differential mm. between sheep and humans is real. And I have an oh, yeah. obligation not to abuse that. So the second that I start yeah. disliking her, I consider that to be my cue to step away because anything that I do to her or with her after that point no longer comes from a place of love and kindness. Mm. It's a very good rule. <laughs> But we do it with people all the time. So I just extend it to the animals too. And I'm like, okay, we'll we'll all be there. But it's also the same thing is that, you know, we talk about um, our our intellectual capacity as researchers, but we don't talk about things like emotional maturity or emotional, Mm. um, the ability to be friends with somebody that you don't always agree with and to not diminish them in the Mm. process of that. Um, it, it requires a, a certain amount of self-awareness, self-possession, and um, yeah, you, an ability to work with your own feelings. Now, I don't think this has much to do with age, personally, because I see, you know, young people with exceptional emotional intelligence and vice versa. Um, so, but I think that a lot of academics, because we're trained to value our mind over our heart. We actually don't put as much work into our emotional intelligence and we're not always the most emotionally mature people. And so Mm. I think that we often struggle to be the kind of friends that we need to be to and with each other. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that Emmeline is such a useful, I'm I'm really grateful to have her to think with too, because to go to Maithili's question about like, it's a Difficult, right? You know, who's the annoying person who you want to stay? It's important to stay in connection with them. And then who's the person that actually you don't want in that flock at all? And actually, it's really important to hold that boundary. Mm. And I think sheep thinking for me feels really useful to think, you know, in the policy worlds that I've seen that are wonderful. Everyone, I think, has gotten Emmeline the cunt who's also in that <laughs> flock. Who ideally, and I would like to think, you know, I'm Emmeline the cunt for someone else as well. You know, and yeah, then, totally. I, I have to be Emmeline to somebody yeah, else. We're all, we all are. We're all Emmeline. And and, and can <laughs> there be someone? And 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 are the other people in that flock um, able to? not exert power over me, you know, even while I'm being annoyed. You know, like there might be some, there's probably some boundaries um, that need to be held. But, you know, can that not, that feeling of dislike for me in that moment, can that be not used as an excuse to wield what power someone else has? And, you know, the policy worlds that are really exciting are ones where people are practicing emotional maturity to actually realize dislike and keep, you know, like listening where you can and and refusing to do the petty 
expelling someone else from the paddock um, just because you can, you know, or being cruel or hurtful just because you can and you want to in that moment because they're bloody annoying and you could do it, damn it. I need to go take a breath. And I think to think of it as parenting too, also vital. It's not that we're not going to have those feelings. That's fine. It's can we breathe a bit? And also can Mm. we say, you know, you don't get to come into this paddock actually. And I think Mm. that's, also, that's some really important line that I think is I, going back to that that tinkering, doctoring. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think there's an answer to it, but there is a can I listen to what's here and kind of hold that tension between opening and protecting. Yeah, and work with my body in that moment. Being where you both are and working where you both work for context, and you're originally from Canada, is that right? Mm-hmm. And you you live and work in um, Aotearoa, and and Laura, you're from Geraldine originally, and you live in Australia now on yep, Gadigal, so land? Gadigal country. Yep, Gadigal I work country. on Gadigal and um, and oh, sorry, live on Gadigal country and work on yeah. Gadigal country. Oh yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm pinning down the places because I wanted to ask you both how um, being Toiwi for Anne. So as someone who's come over, the Māori word for someone who's come over to Aotearoa from overseas, and Pākehā for you, Laura, in Aotearoa, um, and as a migrant in Australia, um, how does that emplacement shape your responsibilities um, and how you research and write? Something of being Pākehā is very much for me part of my research identity in terms mm. of carrying a title for me that is non-Māori, yeah, and then thinking of that as being non-kind of normal, you know, and yet still, you know, from a colonising and dominant peoples. And that's a it's a weird position to have, you know, with not a really strong sense of a tūranga waiwai, mm. um, and yet you know, a whole heap of privilege as well. So I guess in terms of my own work, I have been grappling with this of, um, similar to Anne, I I was never particularly drawn to wanting to um, study other mm, people. With the quote marks, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and quote marks, yeah. Mm. Um, and not that I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm also really grateful for that work that's been done and I've learned a lot mm. from it. Um, and I've learned a lot from, a lot, a lot, a lot of, you know, from the work of Indigenous scholars and reflecting on that, I continue to see the shortcomings in my own cultural um, and political heritages. <laughs> um and so, yeah, a lot of my work, and you know, to think about how to be a scholar and also to not appropriate, um, to not speak for what isn't mine, mm. um, and yet to then acknowledge the limits of what it is, even the very limits of how I think, mm. um, and the limits of my default action, the limits of my, um, you know, extractivism is part of my thinking. And also, self-flagellation isn't interesting or helpful mm. either. Mm. I don't think it can be pretty indulgent as well. <laughs> so I guess what 
and I'm still struggling with this. So, I mean, I'd love to hear thoughts or, you know, others' comments later. But the thing I'm currently interested in is both um, seeing where there are aspects of the heritages that I'm a part of that really block the possibilities for generative connection with others, um, as well as in a lot of those, you know, I'm only able to see where there are blocks because of the work um, in, you know, generosities of scholarship Mm -hmm. of Indigenous scholars, because otherwise Mm -hmm. I can't see it because it Mm -hmm. is just how the world is. Yeah, and then the other thing is also looking for things that seem hopeful as well within practices um, that are already going on. And it's really tempting, right, you know, when you read about some, you know, some really awesome conservation practices that are happening that are, um, you know, First Nations-led and you think, oh, yeah, we just need to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. We just need to – Everywhere. We just need to do that everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. You, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the universalizing comes in so fast. Yeah. And I guess it's wanting to really slow my little self down and just practice having a connection with this person and can I maintain that and what are they – and who are they connected to and how do they maintain those? So it's, it's a funny thing, hey, of baby steps – sustainable relationality and yet yet claiming space to write about something that for a lot of folks um is not news <laughs> you know that mm. that connection really matters um so it's it's very tense i find internally um to think about where is my place it's lovely to hear you say that though laura because it's it's mm. so funny i mean i've i've only ever lived in the colonies like I, mm. I come from English, Irish, and Scottish stock. I've never lived in those places. I, I am a child of the colonies, Spanish mm. colonies, mm. English colonies. I have only ever been an immigrant. So mm. my home has only ever been where I live at any given time. So my sense of belonging, I don't feel an attachment. I have, I know what passports I carry. Um, mm. I don't feel any sense of national connection. I don't feel, I mean, I, I feel my cultural heritage, um, and especially as modes of, of thinking were reinforced through my university education, I understand my intellectual heritage as much as I understand all the other aspects of heritage. Um, but I, I only ever consider myself to be an immigrant. My, my sense of belonging is, is so local and situated that it's very easy for me to say that my only obligation is sort of a hyper-localism. It's building those one-on-one relationships no matter where mm. I am to ensure that the, the space that I've been invited into um, is mm. one where we can respect each other. And so I'm, I'm always also an outsider, though. And it, it doesn't seem to matter how long I live somewhere, I still am always an outsider. And that gives me certain privileges and certain, you know, liabilities. <laughs> and so there's, I, I try mm. to take advantage of the things like being able to offer an outsider perspective or bring a beginner mind to a, to a, a mm. you know, a, a scenario or something. And I, I try to make the most of that while also understanding that my only real responsibility is to the people and environments in which I find myself. And I take those obligations very seriously. 
Um, mm-hmm. I don't need to figure out how to become a better immigrant. I need to figure out how to be in better relation with people around me every day. But I mean, it's funny when I think about, you know, the the invasive species in, in New Zealand. I mean, so the role of, of sheep in colonization truly can't be overstated. <laughs> like they are oh, everything. Yeah. They are the epitome yeah. of the colonial animal. But because they're not mm. predators, they're a good introduced species. Like our, our conservation and uh, uh, efforts here never include livestock, even though none of mm. them belong here either. So I'm fortunate mm, yeah. to have chosen a good introduced species, not one that everybody wants to kill. Okay, well, we do want to kill them, but for totally different reasons. But not, but not <laughs> eradicate them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we want to replace them when we kill them. And that's actually why yeah, we yeah. kill them, is so we can replace them. Um, mm. But... You know, I think I think the last time I, I checked, and this is disproportionate to the population demographics, um, Maori operate, I think, around 25% of all of our sheep and beef farmland, and they make up about 40% of all of the meat processing workforce. So mm-hmm. Maori are massive players in the sheep industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so the relationship there is, is complicated. Um, and it, it complicates things, especially when you want to start calling for reform in livestock industries, um, uh, applying the same lens that we would on other extractivists, because I do believe that industrialized livestock production is extractivist, Mm -hmm. but it's not extractivist Mm -hmm. in the same way that forestry is, or the same way that mining is. And if only because the, it, the, the level and kind of Indigenous engagement with it can't be just dismissed. It, it's too huge. And the only way that anybody is going to make it to tomorrow is together. So the, this whole idea of, of my obligations then again come down to the sheep and people in front of me. Mm. And I try, honestly, I don't mean to sound like I... I I don't care or that I'm apolitical because I'm neither. Um, but I try no, not to yeah, put no, not. too much of it. I try not to put too much of an emphasis on it though. Like I, I don't, I don't frame my work on, on um, multi-species relationships in terms of uh, justice or race relations any more than I frame it in terms of morality. Um, those those just aren't the the frames or lenses that I tend to put on my work, and it's not because I, I often get accused of being shadily apolitical, and I always thought that was very ironic because I consider my politics to be very upfront. I just explained them to you. Whether you recognize that as a political position or not is not my problem. <laughs> it is a political position, and I've I've made it as clear as I possibly can. Um, I withdraw from certain things because I'm concentrating on other things. And you can see what my politics are by watching me. Mm. And also, for me, it feels like coming back to that holism question at the beginning, or earlier on too, like holism and humility together, of that's still for me that anthropological sensibility that I do love of zooming out, holding that and then coming right back in and then holding that and kind of knowing that for me, I can't quite hold the two at one time. Like it, it does 
But there's something about that moving between that just mm. has I a think that's humble my sense thing of about anthropology. Mm. Yeah, mm. is that you can take just a really really banal everyday practice and tie it to the functioning of an entire planet. Yeah, and then you zoom right back down, and you're going, oh "My God, Emmeline, I've got to walk away from you." Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) And I will never, the reason I can never eat Emmeline is because I will never, ever be certain that I killed her under good relation. Oh, wow. I will never eat her, ever, ever, as long as I live. What does she do? What is it about her? What does she do? Everything about her is annoying. Um, Well, first of all, she's she's a perfect example of her breed. Um, she is feral. (laughs) She she is absolutely feral. Um, she jumps every fence you put. She headbutts you to say hello. Um, she is not amenable to any sort of civilized interaction. Um, she is wild as, Um, And she's not wild. She's feral. She knows what it means to be kept and she decides no. Um, She's a thorn in the side of domestication. Uh, (laughs) Oh, she's unruly. Oh, and she is completely ungovernable. And so, of course, she's perfect. (laughs) I mean, she's like, I love everything about her and I can't stand her. And her daughter is exactly the same way. And so I've got stuck with both of them now. I could have said the exact same thing about Esther that I've said about Emmeline. But uh, because they all live together, I can't separate them. Um, Emma is with her daughter and her sisters and her mother. I keep th- three generations together and, you know, I don't like all of my sisters either. <laughs> Can we leave that in? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> know. They know. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, I, I love them, which is the, the best thing, again, coming That's the full important, circle. Yeah. I, Why do I love love is because I can love you and not like you at the same time. I am fully capable of that. And it's because I love you that I react to you differently when I don't like you. If I Mm. don't love you and I don't like you, I'm not going to be nice. But if I love you and I don't like you, I'm still, yeah, that's exactly right. we're, We're bound to each other. Love binds. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to us here at Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast produced by me, Maithli Meher, Timothy Neal, Matt Barlow, Cameo Daly, and David Border-Giles. This episode was produced by me, Maithli, with Matt and Tim contributing to editing and production. In this episode, I'm speaking from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And while it isn't custom here to acknowledge land the way we do in Australia, I do want to recognize Māori in Aotearoa as tangata whenua, meaning people born of the land. And with that, I want to add that we honor and stand behind tino rangatiratanga, that is, Māori's right to sovereignty in this place. 
Conversations in Anthropology is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and with support from the Australian Anthropological Society. If you like what we do here, please share, digitally like, follow, comment, subscribe, tweet. We love to engage with you on all of the platforms in whatever form that might take. Thanks again and take care till next time.